Hi everyone, I'm James Whitaker, and I'd like to ask you to remove all the ferrous objects from about your person before I welcome you to another episode of Conditional One, my occasional podcast focusing on all aspects of MRI safety. Last episode, we looked at some of the fundamentals of MRI, how the static magnetic field is generated, as well as how and why translational force is such a safety issue for us. I'll refer back to some of the things that I talked about last episode, so if you found yourself here without listening to episode 5, Lost in Translation, I'd strongly suggest you pause this and listen to that first. It's okay, I'll wait for you to get back. Moving on from translation, the next thing we need to do is talk about torque, if you'll forgive the expression. Now, torque can be defined as a force that produces rotation of an object around an axis. But what does that mean to us with regards to MRI safety? Well, like translation, torque is primarily experienced by ferromagnetic materials exposed to the static magnetic field. At the beginning of last episode, I gave the definition of a magnet according to the Oxford English Dictionary. A piece of iron or other material which has its component atoms so ordered that the material exhibits properties of magnetism such as attracting other iron-containing objects, or aligning itself in an external magnetic field. That part about aligning with external fields? That's torque. It's how compasses work. You know, the force that makes the needle point north. If an asymmetrical ferromagnetic object is introduced to the static magnetic field, it will rotate so that its long axis will align with the flux lines, as this is the lowest energy state. But what does that mean? Let me give you an analogy. Imagine you're standing on a bridge over a river with a straight stick in your hand. You're holding it horizontally with the two ends of the stick pointing at each bank of the river, perpendicular to the flow of the water. When you drop it, the stick will turn in the water until it's aligned with the flow, as this is the position where the stick's resistance to the force of the water is least. In this example, the magnetic flux lines are the flow of our river. Do you remember that last time I said I'd like to play with scissors? Well, if translation was the only force at play, the scissors would keep pointing downward as they're drawn into the bore. Instead, they turn so that the long axis of the scissors align with the flux lines. If you hold your hand up in the air, the scissors will remain aligned with the field and the tip will move in a circle. The amount of torque upon an item is also hugely dependent on the shape of the object as only asymmetric objects are affected. Magnetic saturation is also a factor, just as with translation. Not only that, the torque on an object changes with its angle to the flux lines, with the object experiencing maximum torque when it's at 45 degrees to the lines of flux. If you do happen to find yourself in a scan room with a pair of scissors, or other similar asymmetric ferrous object, if you grasp the scissors firmly and try to physically turn them away from the flux lines, you'll feel the resistance and then almost a clunk as they pass the point of maximum torque. Unlike translation, which is proportional to the product of static magnetic field multiplied by spatial gradient, also known as the spatial gradient product, torque is proportional to the square of the static magnetic field strength. That means that torque increases exponentially as you approach the bore reaching its maximum at that point on the inner surface of the bore where static field strength is at its greatest. That said, torque forces throughout the bore 
including ISA Centre, are still hugely significant. So why is talk an issue? We get why translation is a problem when it turns anything from a hairpin to a hospital bed into a projectile. But talk? Why is something turning to align with the magnetic field a bad thing? Well, the first recorded death from MRI relates to talk. In 1993, a 74-year-old woman died when her intercerebral aneurysm clip twisted in situ, tearing her middle cerebral artery and causing a massive subarachnoid hemorrhage. Having read the original paper by Klutznik et al, it was a hugely sad set of circumstances and could have been avoided. The patient had neurosurgery in 1978 when the aneurysm clip was originally placed. When she was being screened originally for her MRI, the clip was picked up and her scan was declined. However, after the family contacted the original neurosurgeon, they were told that the clip was conditional up to 1.89 Tesla and she was rescheduled. When she attended for a scan, she complained of a headache when she entered the fringe field and reached the end of the scanning table. She was escorted from the room by the MR tech, but by then the damage was done and she died a day later. It turned out to be a horrible case of mistaken identity. When the original neurosurgical notes were found and reviewed, it turned out that the original information given to the family was incorrect and the clip in place was strongly ferromagnetic. The conclusion of the 1993 paper in Radiology reads as follows. Only after a tragic occurrence did we learn of the misinformation provided to our institution. Had we only demanded the written operative note to prove the clip's identity, the patient would never have been imaged. Verbal information from either the patient, the family or a physician's office should never be relied on in making the decision whether to perform MR imaging of a patient with an aneurysm clip. Translation and talk are by far the most significant of the forces relating to the static magnetic field and the spatial gradient. There are other issues that we need to consider, namely interference with the function of active implants or devices, lens force, and bioeffects arising from exposure to the static magnetic field. Active devices, such as pacemakers and neurostimulators, are becoming increasingly common in our patient populations, and as they do, we need to be ever more vigilant to ensure that the static magnetic field does not cause an interruption in device function. When I started my training in MRI, the presence of a pacemaker was a hard contraindication, and that was reinforced for me in 2002 when the ex-mayor of a northern English town died following an MRI when her doctors forgot about her pacemaker. In fact, as of 2017, there have been 13 pacemaker-related MRI fatalities, though I'm sure that there have been others in the past five years. Sticking with pacemakers as the example, the issue with regards to static field relates to something known as a reed switch. A reed switch, small r by the way, is an electromagnetic switch with two thin magnetic strips or reeds that open or close when exposed to an external magnetic field. When the switch opens or closes, it triggers a change in the behaviour of the pacemaker, 
usually placing it in an asynchronous or MRI mode that delivers pacing at a constant rate regardless of the dependence of the patient on their device. Unfortunately, read switches can be affected by changes in external magnetic fields, so movement through the spatial gradient can cause them to open or close unexpectedly. And if the flux lines in the read switch intersect at certain angles, they can also behave unpredictably. Read switches can be affected by static fields as low as 5 Gauss, which is one of the reasons for the 5 Gauss line that has formed our safe limit for so many years. Modern MRI conditional pacemakers have replaced their read switches with something known as a Hall sensor, which has done away with the magnetic strips in favour of semiconductors that behave more consistently in the static magnetic field. These more modern devices can be safely scanned as long as their conditions are met, but never take anything for granted. Right, up to now, the forces we've been discussing exclusively affect ferromagnetic materials, but that all changes when we get to this next force. Lenses force. We've already discussed the generation of magnetic fields due to the movement of current through conductive coils, but this is slightly different. If you move a conductor through a static magnetic field, then you'll induce a current in the conductor. That moving current will then generate its own magnetic field in the opposite direction to which the conductor's moving. Confused? Fortunately, you can safely demonstrate lens force in your own scanner and experience it for yourself using simple kitchen equipment. This can be done by taking an aluminium baking tray or pizza pan into the scan room, but only after confirming that it's definitely not ferromagnetic. Place it on its edge on the scanning table near to the entry of the bore and tip it forward towards the bore. As the tray drops, it experiences a change in B0, which generates a current and attendant magnetic field away from the bore. This field opposes gravity and will slow the tray's fall. Alternatively, Waving the tray around in the fringe field near the scanner will create a force resisting the direction of motion. Cool, eh? The faster you move the tray, the greater the resistive force. Okay, apart from being a nerdy MRI-specific party trick, why do we care about lenses force? Well, any metallic object introduced to the fringe field around the bore entrance can experience a measurable force if it's moving fast enough and this can dislodge or potentially damage implants or other devices. Back in 2013, a nurse in Italy had a very painful experience a month after having a stapes prosthesis implanted in her ear. The nurse was attending an anaesthetised patient having an MRI scan, and bent down to place her head in the bore to check on her patient. The nurse described a sudden pain, similar to a rubber band pinging. Her stapes prosthetic was made from nitinol, a nickel-titanium alloy that's non-ferromagnetic. The manufacturer specified that patients with this device could safely be scanned at up to field strengths of 3T, but this case goes to show that we need to be mindful not only of what we introduce into the scanner environment, but also how we do it. Now, as we've discussed earlier, if you pass electric current through a conductor, you'll generate a magnetic field. And if you move a conductor through a magnetic field, you'll generate a current. However, what we haven't discussed is what happens if you pass a current through a conductor within an existing magnetic field. Can you guess? 
That's right, a force will be generated and the conductor will move if it's able to. This is known as Lorentz force and depends on the alignment of the magnetic field and the direction in which currents travelling. Lorentz forces give rise to two bioeffects that we encounter when passing through the static magnetic field. The first of these is called the magneto-hydromagnetic effect, and you will not believe how many times I had to record this because I kept saying that wrong. The human body contains approximately 5 litres of blood, and we often think of it in terms of the cells it contains and what they do. Red cells carrying oxygen, white cells fighting infection, and platelets to clot and close wounds, for instance. However, over half of those 5 litres of blood in our bodies is made up of plasma, the liquid component vital for maintaining our circulation and blood pressure. And within plasma, there are a wide array of electrolytes, charged ions of elements or molecules that support our normal bodily functions. The six most important are sodium, potassium, and calcium, which are positively charged, and chloride, bicarbonate, and phosphate, which are negatively charged. Blood is constantly moving, or at least it should be, so when a human enters the static magnetic field, these moving electric charges will be affected by Lorentz force. For want of a better word, positive ions will be pushed in one direction, and negative ions will be pushed in the opposite direction, and this gives rise to a potential difference or voltage within the blood. The magnitude of this force depends on the direction of blood flow relative to the static field, so blood flowing parallel to the field experiences no Lorentz force, while blood flowing perpendicular to the field will experience the maximum force. Why is this important? Well, at higher field strengths, it is theoretically possible for voltages of more than plus 40 millivolts to be generated, and this would be sufficient to trigger depolarization of cardiac muscle, which in turn triggers muscular contraction. Needless to say, anything that interferes with normal cardiac rhythm is generally not considered to be a good thing. To date, though, this is purely theoretical, and no ill effects have been observed, because the main vessels of the body, aorta, vena cava, etc., run mostly parallel to the static field. One real-world way in which the magneto-hydrodynamic effect can impact our practice is through potential interference with ECG monitoring. Within the human body, the descending aorta is the vessel where the greatest voltage can be generated due to the velocity and volume of flowing blood. Depending on the field strength, the voltage generated across the aorta at peak flow can be 5 to 10 millivolts which, as we've already mentioned, wouldn't be sufficient to cause any ill effects. However, despite being a distance away from the heart, this voltage can cause an artefact on ECG and lead to T-wave elevation. Cool. So what? Have you ever heard of a STEMI? It stands for ST elevation, myocardial infarction, and accounts for about 40% of myocardial infarctions, more colloquially known as heart attacks. So, let's assume you have a patient that the clinicians are sufficiently worried about to be ECG monitoring during their MRI, and they see an increased T-wave, which looks an awful lot like a warning sign for a heart attack. That's why it can be a problem. But it gets even more complicated when you realise this. T-wave elevation only occurs if the patient is head first, 
and the direction of B0 runs from head to foot. If either of those is reversed, most commonly if you place your patient into the ball feet first, the T wave will be reduced, which creates a theoretical risk that the ECG appearances of an incipient STEMI could be masked. Isn't that fun? The second bioeffect caused by Lorentz forces is vertigo, the sensation that you, or the environment around you, is moving or spinning. But why? The semicircular canals of the inner ear are three tiny tubes filled with fluid called endolymph that help us to balance. As our heads move, the fluid shifts within the canals and moves tiny hair cells that connect to the vestibular nerve, giving a stimuli that helps us balance. Endolymph contains a high concentration of potassium ions, which are positively charged. As our heads move through the stationary field, the potassium ions in the endolymph experience Lorentz force, leading to motion of the hair cells and erroneous stimulation of the vestibular nerve. This causes the vertigo that patients sometimes report, potentially with nausea and dizziness. The likelihood and severity of vertigo increases with field strength, and at the most prevalent field strengths of 1.5 and 3T, less than 5% of patients will be affected. At 7T, however, the incidence is closer to 40%. This static field-induced vertigo is most likely to be experienced when the patient is moving into the scanner, and should abate when the patient reaches ISO centre. When you bring them out, though, it reoccurs, but the feeling of movement is in the opposite direction. Okay, for this last section, we're heading out a little into left field, as these final bioeffects are both relatively rare at current field strengths, and they're also inconsequential from a safety perspective. That said, patients may mention that they're experiencing these effects, so being aware of them and their benign nature makes it much easier for us to reassure patients who are experiencing them. Phosphenes are little flashes of light caused by stimulation of the retina. You know the saying, when all you have is a hammer, every problem begins to look like a nail? Well, retinas are a bit like that. They're designed to capture light and turn it into electrical signals. So any stimulus they receive will be interpreted as light and that information will be transmitted to the brain. If you rub your eye, for instance, the increased pressure leads to patterns of light, even though your eyelids are closed. Because the retinas are so sensitive, they can also react to electric stimulus caused by moving through a static magnetic field, giving rise to what is known as magnetophosphenes. How prevalent they are is up for debate, but a 2015 paper by Freiber et al. found that nearly 20% of volunteers exposed to a 7T field reported seeing magnetophosphenes while moving into or out of the scanner. The last bioeffect can leave a bad taste in your mouth literally. While rare, patients exposed to the static field have reported a metallic taste in their mouths. The cause for this has been a matter for some debate, with the original hypothesis being that the taste was coming from metal ions liberated from dental amalgam. But as the taste was also reported by patients without dental work, this theory was soon discarded. The current theory is that the taste is caused by induction of electric current in the tongue not dissimilar to holding a 9 volt battery to your tongue. Do not try that at home. Okay, so 
that seems like a pretty good place to wrap things up for this episode. So I'd like to say thank you to purpleplanet.com for the use of their music and thank Janelle Whitaker for graphic design and proofreading. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast or ideas for future episodes of Conditional One, please email me. My email address is podcast at conditionalone.com. And remember, if anyone ever tells you that being an MRI technologist isn't rocket science, tell them no, but it is nuclear physics. Goodbye. <laughs>